Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Hey everyone, it's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your wake-up call. If you're paying too much for wireless service, you don't have to keep having that nightmare. Consumer Cellular has the same fast, reliable coverage as the leading carriers for less. And for a limited time, new customers receive their second month free when they sign up and use promo code MONTHFREE by May 31st. So why keep spending more than you have to? Seriously, wake up and call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com. Taxes, fees, and other third-party charges will apply. See website for additional details. Need an easy button to feed your baby? Baby Bretza's Formula Pro Advanced makes a perfectly mixed warm formula bottle automatically at the push of a button no air bubbles no fuss literally choose your temp select your ounces push start and you're done works with virtually all formulas and bottles say goodbye to the 3 a.m feeding chaos and hello to this revolutionary stress-free solution raising a baby is hard enough let baby bretza make feeding a breeze get your formula pro advanced at babybrezza.com Hey guys, ready or not, 2024 is here, and we here at Breaking Points are already thinking of ways we can up our game for this critical election. We rely on our premium subs to expand coverage, upgrade the studio, add staff, give you guys the best independent coverage that is possible. If you like what we're all about, it just means the absolute world to have your support. But enough with that, let's get to the show. He's so funny. Ryan said he going to start the show today. Well, first of all, welcome to Counterpoints. But if you were listening, Ryan was opening the show by looking straight to camera as though he was busy reading his book, The Squad, AOC and the Hope of a Political Revolution. I don't know if that counts as starting the show, Ryan. I'm, en- I'm enjoying it. It's, it's fun to go back through it. Speaking of this book, uh, we're going to have Ted Cruz on the show uh, right. later today. We promised last time that Ted Cruz was going to join us. We talked a big game. We were really going to nail this guy to the wall. And he, maybe he was watching the beginning of the show, and he decided he's not, not going to make it. He rescheduled for today, so yeah. he will be here later. That's what we're told. We make no promises because he <laughs> controls his schedule, but he says he will be here later in the show. The reason it's relevant to the book is he's currently hanging out at number 13 on the bestseller list. Mm-hmm. You know what they say about the last person to graduate from medical school? Mm. What do they call them? Right. A doctor. Right. The person that's at the very bottom of the bestseller list, best-selling author. Right. My book's out next week. I've got my eye on Ted Cruz. <laughs> it's kind of a conflict of interest to have him on here because I don't want to help him sell books. This is so bitterly competitive. It is. It is. I'm going to make it the most boring interview ever so nobody watches it nobody buys the book. <laughs> that's pretty good. Uh, well, maybe don't do that. I won't do that. It'll, it'll be an exciting interview. We do. And go have, ahead and buy the book. If you like Ted Cruz, go ahead and buy his book. You know, he's always game to have debates and arguments, so I expect yeah. that's what's going to happen. By the time this airs, we'll know how it went, but that's my expectation for it at the very least. Uh, but, Ryan, before we get to that, we do have a lot of news to yeah. go over. More hostages were released yesterday. Uh, more negotiations towards a potential extension of the ceasefire. Uh, we have elections. Nikki Haley got the coveted Koch brothers endorsement. And Congratulations Ron DeSantis. to Nikki Haley. 
Kelly. Ron DeSantis had an interesting reaction to that. Uh, we're talking about all kinds of stuff today. And Yes, and Congress is now trying to figure out ways to get money to Ukraine. Yes. And so the new strategy that they have landed on is they're going to tighten asylum rules. They're going to add more money for border security. There's a deal being kind worked of. out between kind of Ukraine. Yeah, it, it's sort of, kind of. Yeah. Like, well, it, the kind of hardline immigration hawks don't like it. Obviously, the immigration rights groups don't like it. Yeah. Uh, people who think that we need to wind this war down already don't like it. Nobody seems to like it. But that's how they get things through Congress that nobody likes. Is that's by, how we get things done yes, in this country. That's right. <laughs> Making yeah. everybody Since mad. Since everybody hates it, that means it's likely uh, to become law. Everybody hates it except for the lobbyists, probably. Yeah. And in no, this it's case, great, great for actually, Northern definitely. Virginia real estate. Yeah. That's for sure. It'll do great for that. Uh, we also had some interesting numbers coming out of Black Friday about buy now, pay later functions that have been added to different shopping websites and what that might say about the economy. After that, we will get to Ted Cruz. But let's start with the hostages, Ryan. More hostages yeah. were released yesterday. We can put the A block up on the screen here. Uh, the, the truce, I guess if you could call it that, was extended two days and 11 more hostages were free yesterday. What did you make of some of this footage that was coming out uh, yesterday of the Middle East, Ryan, of hostages being released? Yeah, and what I think people who are ho are hoping for is that this two-day truce will lead to another two or three-day truce, uh, which leads to another one and can eventually reach to, uh, you know, get to some kind of long-term uh truce, because you're not going to get to a resolution, you're not going to get to justice at this point. Because at the same time that this is unfolding, you have the complete collapse of all civilian infrastructure in Gaza. You've got more than 1.7 million people displaced. You have the water treatment facilities destroyed. You have sewage treatment facilities destroyed. You have people who don't have enough, remotely enough access, to, for, let alone water, but food also. The healthcare system is completely destroyed doesn't take a lot of imagination to understand where that's going. Like that leads directly to rampant disease. Uh, Cindy McCain actually is, uh, you know, now the head of the World Food Program, which mm -hmm. I, had, I had forgotten, but mm -hmm. she, she's been out warning that Gaza is approaching, you know, famine conditions. There are only about 200 trucks of, you know, containing humanitarian relief supplies getting in, and that's just not enough for a city of what used to be a city of two million people, but which is now a gigantic pile of rubble mm -hmm. uh, on which two million people are expected to survive. And, and we have more from the New York Times. We can put this uh, next graphic up on the screen here. Uh, the first round of hostages released as extended truce appears to hold. That's their headline. Uh, but if you're looking at this, if you're watching the show, you can see these figures here of the people who have passed away in captivity, the people who are 80 years old in captivity, 80 years and over in captivity, which we saw actually some of them mm -hmm. being released, uh, Israelis, yesterday, and getting jeered pretty brutally as they were released. Uh, we saw a, or, or we see here, uh, people 55 years and older, 18 to 45, 54 and older, uh, 11 Israeli hostages were released yesterday. And I, the, the, according to Reuters, uh, Hamas had said earlier that it received a list of 33 Palestinians that were going to be released from Israeli jails in return for those 11 hostages. People probably remember uh, that the Israeli the, the Israeli stance on this was that they would extend the truce by one day for every 10 more hostages that were released. Ryan, where do you think that stands right now after yesterday? I, I think that they're sorting out who and how they're going to move forward. Yeah. I do think that Hamas wants to continue releasing hostages. They certainly prefer that to 
you know, a bombing rampage. They have, they have essentially signaled that they would release all the hostages if there would be a kind of permanent ceasefire right. reached. Uh, is, is basically, Israeli government is rejecting that, saying that no, like they're, they're, they're still committed to completely annihilating Hamas. Uh, the calculations of what that would take, though, at the current pace, you know, they, they have, they, there are various estimates of how many Hamas fighters they've killed at this point. You're talking, I've seen estimates between one and 2,000. Others have said maybe up to 5,000. But you're talking about at least 13,000 mm -hmm. people being killed, and, and people are saying it's likely, you know, significantly higher than that. Yeah. So in order to kill 30 to 40,000 Hamas fighters and actually annihilate this, we're talking about hundreds of thousands of killed, and that's violently killed. That's before you get to the number of people dying by disease. But just as these hostage releases are putting kind of a global spotlight on the Hamas brutality of, of you know, people over 80 in captivity, yeah. people under Holocaust six, survivors, Holocaust right. survivors under in captivity, the Israeli hostage release is similarly putting a spotlight on some of their brutality. And you're seeing, uh, you're seeing children released who are, you know, allegedly caught up for uh, throwing stones, a lot of, you know, mostly women and children who are being held mostly without charges, some some convicted, some charged, but most mostly not. And the the way that they're being treated, and maybe we have this here, the way, the way that they're talking about having been treated in, uh, is, in Israeli detention is also shocking. <laughs> so just horrifying stories that we're hearing coming out of uh, from from the detainees, and then we're also winding up with this situation uh, where. Uh, the detainees are, or the former detainees are being told that they're not allowed to celebrate, not allowed to meet with people, not allowed to speak to the press. They're as not, part of the you know, deal. As part of the deal. They're not allowed to celebrate struck me. It's, you know, actually, let's even get into this next clip yeah. because we see some of this kind of the sparks mm -hmm. uh, really starting to fly on this issue. Uh, on let's Sky News, I believe. Yeah. Right. We understand that a teenager has been shot. Is this the right way to handle this situation, given that tensions are already rising and emotions are already quite high? Well, we're talking about the release of attempted murderers. You call them children, but we're talking about teenagers who stabbed other teenagers. We're talking about... That's not my question, Deputy Mayor. I, I, I totally I and fully understand that they have giving, been accused... I understand, but I, 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 and I, I, if I can, Deputy Mayor, I, Deputy Mayor, I'm just going to interrupt you. I, I'm fully aware, I'm fully aware of... 
I'm answering uh, the Deputy question. Mayor, part of I, the deal I'm was fully aware of what they've been... Part of the deal was that there would be no celebrations. And the reason that these clashes are occurring is because exactly against the deal that there would be no celebrations celebrating the release of attempted murderers in East Jerusalem, in my city, where many people, many of the victims live side by side with the people who try to kill them. Part of the deal was that they would not have these celebrations. And if the clashes are occurring, it's exactly because of that. Well, so that was the deputy mayor, you heard mm -hmm. that, of Jerusalem speaking on Sky News. And Ryan, you know, I do, what you said earlier makes sense to me. It also makes sense to me that celebrations can fuel potential conflict in a way that, you know, she's, she's making a decent argument that that's what happened. So it, it goes back to this talking point that we constantly hear that Israel is the, the only democracy in the Middle East, mm -hmm. that that's why we, that's, that's why it needs to be protected. Right. The only democracy in the Middle East would not insist that you cannot celebrate because you have to understand that's also in the context of laws they've implemented in the last several weeks mm -hmm. that say you cannot you know that there, there have been hundreds and even thousands of people arrested and jailed for posting just sympathy for people who've been killed in yes. gaza in fact we talked but, about a journalist right um the last week on the show, who yeah. and, and those were not sympathetic posts that she ended up uh, being detained over. They were not, I, I wouldn't characterize them as sympathetic so much as I would characterize them as sympathetic with Hamas. They're sort of mm -hmm. mocking people who have been taken hostage. Um, but yes, she, it, it's, she was detained. Right. And then the, the idea that though, not only can you not celebrate, but you can't have family members come visit you after you've kind of left detention, uh, it's, it, it just really exposes and, or, or asks the question of what kind of democracy are we talking about here? It's like a, this last democracy in the Middle East or the only democracy in the Middle East. That also, why does Iraq get uh, short shrift on this all the time? Lebanon has elections too. <laughs> Didn't we create a democracy? I thought we did Middle that. East? We did, yeah. yeah. And also they do have elections. Are you saying the yeah. mission was not accomplished? It was a mission was accomplished, clearly. Well, that's what I thought. More, it's, I, I would, Anyway, <laughs> <laughs> we yeah. needn't litigate, relitigate that. But no, I mean, I, I think it's legitimately a challenge um, because you you do have a, a serious potential for a security situation to erupt, and obviously want to avoid that as much as possible so that you can get your own hostages back. Uh, and that's, I, I mean, it's no easy feat, but obviously doing it well proving that you you know can live up to the standards of uh, the sort of Middle Eastern democracy. I mean, it's important, obviously. Right, and, and even if you have cut a deal with Hamas that there would be no celebrations, like the people who were released from prison were not part of that deal. They were just told that they were released from prison. Mm. And then if you're, if you're celebrating the fact that you've gotten your freedom, the other choice that the Israeli soldiers and Israeli police have is to not shoot them. Mm. Like that's, you could also just let the celebration kind of wind down and people go home. Like that's, that's, an, that's an option that exists. Speaking of peace, uh, the number one Washington peacenik, Joe Biden, <laughs> uh, yesterday posted something extraordinarily controversial, which he is already walking back. But let's put this up here and I'll re read this. Tell me what you make of this. <laughs> Hamas unleashed, this is Joe Biden, Hamas unleashed a terrorist attack because they fear nothing more than Israelis and Palestinians living side by side in peace to continue down the path of terror, violence, killing, and war is to give Hamas what they seek. We can't do that. You know, for the most part, this is also, this was my analysis from the very beginning, mm -hmm. that Hamas 
its its brutal provocation was intended yeah. to create war, to undermine the, the extension of the Abraham Accords, and that Israel should not play into their hands mm -hmm. by engaging in, as Biden calls it, terror, violence, killing, and war, and that we can't do that. That kind of, that was, because this was posted on Twitter, I think, and Biden is not used to making news on Twitter. Yeah. The American press largely skipped over this post from yesterday. Israeli press sees on it was like, whoa, mm -hmm. what on earth is Biden saying? Because Biden clearly seems to be referring to the Israeli action as terror, violence, yes. killing, yes. and war. Yeah. Which it is. It's terrifying. It's it's violent. It's killing. And it's war. It's war. Right. And so the Israeli press is saying, wait a minute, is Biden all of a sudden calling for a ceasefire and an end of the war? Right. No, he's not. He's he not. walks it back. He's now walking it back in. Well, his aides are walking it back to reporters. Uh, do we have? Here for, let me get your reaction, and I'll find the I'll find the ex exact quote. Yeah. First of all, I mean, imagine it's your job to write these tweets yeah. for Joe Biden. <laughs> yeah. I mean, and in you, all act, yeah, and you accidentally called for an end of war. And yeah. you don't. And we're going to get into uh, what Netanyahu talked about with Elon Musk recently, and Elon Musk's trip to Israel, uh, because actually Netanyahu was talking about a two-state solution, whether or not he supports the two-state oh, yeah, solution. That's but extremely it's, important. It's yeah. very relevant. Yeah. Right now, we're going to get into some of that in a second. But it is really relevant right now as we're talking about this post from Biden on X, because. Because uh, that is in contrast with the statement of the, the government, the stated position of the government of the country who is reliant on our aid in this situation. I don't mean our money, uh, but certainly our munitions. There are plenty of quotes uh, from Israeli <laughs> government officials in the Israeli press about how devastating it would be to lose the support of America in the war because, specifically because of uh, munitions and, and those types of resources. Uh, it's less about, you know, we're about 20% and in a normal year we make up about 20% of their military budget. So significant, not make or break, but the uh, the munitions are absolutely critical. And, and so it's really strange to see that ostensible contradiction between our position and Netanyahu's position. You've made an interesting point repeatedly about how Biden, you, you made this point on Twitter yesterday, I saw, um, I think you were arguing with Ben Dreyfus, and <laughs> you were talking about how Biden Biden's strategy seems to be a, a public stance that allows him to pressure right. Netanyahu privately, but we don't know. I mean, we honestly have no idea. That's what idea. he claims, right. 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 We don't know what's happening behind the scenes, but yes, that is, that, that's what Biden has been saying, that he's, and he, he's kind of alluded to it a little bit. Uh, when he was asked about conditioning aid, whether you should condition aid to Israel based on whether or not they're committing human rights abuses, he said the other day, that's an interesting thought, and it's something we should consider. Mm -hmm. That's the furthest an American president has gone since, well, back in, back in the 80s, uh, the, the, the posture even of the Reagan administration was further to the left than we're in now. But in this new era, uh, that's, that's a step that hasn't been taken before. And then Biden said, if I had started by saying that, then I wouldn't have, he basically said that I wouldn't have been able to develop the wiggle room privately to, to force this kind of truce and this hostage deal. The problem with that claim of his is that Hamas was putting this on the table from the very beginning. And President of the United States can, with a phone call, force Israel mm -hmm. to take these deals. They did it in 1982 with Lebanon. Uh, Biden himself did it in 2021 with Gaza. Like, you can make these phone calls, and by the end of the phone call, the Israeli prime minister agrees 
to truces. Mm -hmm. like, that's how that's how this works. So it could have happened. So he didn't need to actually do this, but that is his claim. Now, here's here's the cleanup on his uh, his peacenik tweet. Uh, this is to Jewish Insider. This is an a, a White House aide. He meant that we can't lose hope for peace. So we don't want to lose hope. Not that he wants <laughs> or demands peace or is going to use his power to actually bring about peace. We can't lose hope for peace. So he meant that we can't lose hope for peace ultimately in the region. So ultimately sometime in the future. That it's still incredibly important that we continue to lay the groundwork for and create the conditions for a lasting peace. And that involves a two-state solution. Yeah. And so let's get to the next two uh, elements here, which are quite relevant to this. First is Ben Gavir. Yep. It's f uh, far right doesn't even begin to describe him, but he's, he's a uh, he, he represents a, a, a hard right settler kind of uh, block in in uh, Netanyahu's government. If we can put this put this one up here, Ben Gavir. Basically, he says, if you don't hurry up and restart this war, I'm going to bring the government down. And now, he's the national security minister. Yeah. And now, now Gavir could leave the government, and if everyone else stayed, uh, Netanyahu would enough, have enough support to stay. Mm -hmm. But Gavir is not alone in his hawkish approach to this. Now, the counter-argument that Netanyahu has been making to the right, and this is the argument that he's been making for years that we refuse to hear in the United States, let's put up this quote uh, from uh, Bibi Netanyahu. He, he, he told his cabinet, essentially, quote, I am the only one who will prevent a Palestinian state in Gaza and the West Bank after the war. So that is Netanyahu's argument for why he should be prime minister. That is what he effectively uh, ran on this is just when yesterday, he became by the way. prime minister. Right, the, this is the, yesterday. Fresh quote, that's from yesterday. While right. Joe Biden is posting a tweet that he posted. Right, saying that Biden, Biden insists that everything they're doing is in, in furtherance of a two-state solution, while Netanyahu has been very publicly and openly saying he does not support a two-state solution. And the reason, and he has said this in the past, the reason that he bucked up Hamas mm -hmm. was because Hamas makes it more difficult for Palestinians to get to statehood. Mm -hmm. So we are at a place where we're, like I think the word gaslighting is overused, but when you see the, the contradiction in these, in these public statements, it's kind of staring you at the face. I think it, it's appropriate to, fi to finally use that. Well, the word quagmire is underused in American foreign policy, and that's where this is headed from my perspective. As again, uh, you know, I, I know a lot of our audience disagrees with me on the question of Israel. I'm generally supportive of Israel and, and take a different position on this, um, although I have plenty of problems with the way they've prosecuted this war and the way that they've chosen to run their country. Uh, but even so, we are headed to a situation where you have right now a completely different end game for the government that Joe Biden is supporting. If mm -hmm. their end game is openly on November 27th, no Palestinian state, and Biden is saying on the one hand, uh, you know, I'm two state solution, Mr. Two State Solution here, which has long been his approach to this and it's something that he's touted, uh, then what does it mean to eradicate Hamas? What does it mean to destroy Hamas? What does it mean to eliminate Hamas? Hamas, seriously, tell me, because I don't think we have any answers to that question. What have you done so far? We actually don't know, to your point that you yeah. made earlier, we don't know uh, a breakdown of Hamas and civilians. We don't know the extent of the damage to the Hamas military and government operation, the terrorist operation. It's extremely hard to say, and at the same time, now, because of what Biden has said, there are some people in Israel, actually left and right, who are looking at it and saying, 
Ben Gavir, bring the government down because uh, we can't have a ceasefire right now that's prolonged indefinitely into the future. We will not sufficiently uh, eliminate, we will not sufficiently harm Hamas's yeah. military operation. They don't believe that Hamas's military operation has gotten its sort of uh, necessary comeuppance. And I mean that in a pragmatic sense as much as a moral sense uh, for what they did on October 7th. And so these are huge tensions. The CIA director, William Burns, was apparently he's been taking a, a leading role in negotiations. He was in Israel talking to the Mossad head yesterday um, and, and trying to negotiate further with Hamas. But that only goes so far when you have dramatically different end games. And that to me feels like a quagmire. Right. Or yes. And the the folks like Ben Gavir are very clear that they have absolutely no interest in giving up the West Bank. Like they have absolutely not. They have seized vast portions of it and they do not plan on it slowing down the settlements or uh, slowing down the expulsions. Mm -hmm. Or, or what peace would take, which is actually rolling back the settlements, the land, land for peace. Mm -hmm. And when it comes to Gaza, uh, they've been also very clear, like that there are you know significant elements of the Israeli government say we should just clear it out, yeah, and and turn it into is, is, is Israeli settlements. And it, I mean, our government is funding, supporting a war that the government we're supporting has a completely different end game. Uh, as opposed to what our position is on this. Well, our, our public position, position, at least. We're not that stupid, though, are we? If our position is a two-state solution, and right. this is the government, the head of the government that we're supporting is saying something basically completely different than that. Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Hey everyone, it's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your wake-up call. If you're paying too much for wireless service, you don't have to keep having that nightmare. Consumer Cellular has the same fast, reliable coverage as the leading carriers for less. And for a limited time, new customers receive their second month free when they sign up and use promo code MONTHFREE by May 31st. So why keep spending more than you have to? Seriously, wake up and call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com. Taxes, fees, and other third-party charges will apply. See website for additional details. Like many of us, you might think identity theft will never happen to you. But consider this. There's a new identity theft victim every three seconds in the U.S. That's over 15 million people by the end of this year, equal to the populations of New York, Los Angeles, and Chicago combined. Even worse, identity theft victims often don't even know they're victims. That's why LifeLock Identity Theft Protection alerts you to identity threats even the ones that don't show up on a credit report, like data breaches, fraudulent bank transactions, loan and credit card applications, and crimes committed in your name. If your identity is stolen, your own dedicated LifeLock U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. LifeLock protects you in ways that you simply can't on your own. Join now and save up to 25% your first year at lifelock.com slash news. That's lifelock.com slash news to save up to 25%.
Identity theft protection starts here. Let's move into the second yeah. part of the block because we have Netanyahu talking exactly about this. Uh, we're going to start, though, with Elon Musk because the two of them had a conversation when Elon Musk went to Israel this week and toured. Let's start with some clips. And some of the audio here is a little bit hard to hear, but uh, there's there's some interesting stuff in here. So let's roll this one. Last night, some of them uh, returned home. Not home yet, but they uh, returned to Israel. And, uh, most of them were kidnapped from the houses over there. They were murdered, especially inside them, in order to breach doors or windows. I mean, obviously, the, the, the three things that need to happen uh, in, in the Gaza situation. I mean, there's no choice but to kill those who insist on uh, murdering civilians. There's no exactly. choice. Um, they're not going to change their mind. But, and then the second thing is to change the, the education so that an, a new generation of, of murderers is not trained to be murderers. And then, the, and then the third thing, which is also very important, is to try to build prosperity. So this is Elon Musk talking to Netanyahu uh, in the first part of the clip, and we actually have more from a conversation they had uh, that we're going to roll. I think we might as well just roll right into it because it's, it's still very relevant. Here's that clip. The Germans hold themselves up in uh, German cities. Nobody said, well, don't attack uh, the, the Wehrmacht, the German army, the Nazi army, because you have uh, civilians there. In fact, that's exactly what the Allies did through the cities of France and the cities of Germany, and many, many, many civilians were killed. Uh, I don't know what history would be like if you had, uh, you know, the kind of mass communications that we have today and protests would have been launched against the Allies on behalf yeah, of the Nazis, because, because uh, as the German chancellor who visited Israel and saw these, these horrors, he said, Hamas are the new Nazis. Hamas are the new Nazis, and people are demonstrating either, either out of ignorance or out of uh, malevolence. They're protesting yeah. for the wrong side. I mean, it, is, it was troubling to see massive protests in almost every major city um, in favor of Hamas. Uh, or, well, they generally characterize it as sort of a free Palestine movement. Ren, obviously, a lot of international law was developed in the wake mm -hmm. of World War II and exactly what Netanyahu was talking about. We sort of came to a consensus, uh, at least a lot of the West came to a consensus, consensus on what was appropriate uses of some of these vastly power, more powerful new technologies, military right. technologies. Yeah, like the world, including the West, Basically, no, Dresden was not okay, actually. And planes, by the way, are new yeah. in Dresden. We take it for somewhat for granted now. But, like, planes were within 100 years of their existence. I mean, yeah, decades way even. less. Yeah, yeah, we're, yeah, we're talking decades into the existence of airplanes and are, are being used in completely foreign ways to wage war that humanity had never seen before in World War One and World War Two. Right. And so, to, yeah, to go back and say that the things that, the, the world, like they were actual, not like the Germans were act, actual Nazis. Like you didn't have to stretch the, like some, some weird comparison to say that all Hamas are Nazis or, you know, uh, actual Nazis. And even, even in that situation, the West is like, okay, if we had it to do over again, Dresden is, you know, firebombing Dresden and killing how, how many tens of thousands of, of civilians uh, with, you know, for the sake of sowing terror was not actually necessary for the military. And, and goal. 
That was Elon Musk with Netanyahu on on X, right? They were doing a spaces mm -hmm. conversation on X. So this was a public back and forth. That's the audio that you just heard. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I think it's, it's, it's again putting Elon Musk in this strange situation, or I guess he's putting himself in this strange situation where we've seen the power that he has in Ukraine with Starlink. Uh, and then the tour with Netanyahu is also extremely interesting because it's, I think, underscoring the power that he has with X. And so he has this sort of like multi-front on the, the info <coughs> war front, the, the info operation front. He controls one of the most important, one of the, the largest platforms uh, for social media, for media now, period. Uh, it's it's the public square. Yeah. He controls it. And then on the other hand, he also controls and, and has the potential to control when it comes to, at least in Ukraine, and I know there's talk about how Starlink can function in the future and, and be expanded and used, uh, the means to even engage in that discourse. Yeah, and his point, Elon Musk is a very, very smart guy. And so when he says like really dumb things, I always wonder like what on earth is going on? So he <laughs> talked about the, basically we need to re-educate people in, in Gaza and, and then we need prosperity. I'm all with him on prosperity. Like, basically the way that the, uh, the, the troubles in Ireland, you know, mm -hmm. wind up is that the, the Ireland was given basic dignity, but also economic growth and opportunity. And so the costs of joining, you know, Sinn Féin uh, were higher because you had actual economic opportunities. The costs of joining Hamas for a 19-year-old kid in Gaza is zero because it's like a 75% unemployment rate. Now it's close to 100%. Mm -hmm. And so what else do you have to do? Like if you give people other options, they're going to take them. That's why you see kind of prosperity and, and peace in the end to conflict uh, mo moving in tandem. So I think he's right on that. The education point was just absurd. I interviewed uh, a guy who uh, went to school in Gaza a couple weeks ago, and I, I actually asked him about what, what you hear about uh, all the propaganda that, that Hamas and before them, you know, Fatah, was giving to children in in Gaza yeah, schools, yeah. and you read some of it, you're like, yeah, this is this is gross stuff. Yeah, like it, that, there's no doubt about it. But he, he made the point. He's like, he's like, you really think that in a situation where you're living under a blockade, where you have four hours of electricity a day, where your access to to food and water is heavily restricted by the Israeli government, uh, that you're unable to travel to visit your family in the West Bank or visit your family in Saudi Arabia or Jordan. You can't leave for college. You get sick. You need treatment in a, in a hospital. You can't leave Gaza. He's like, under those conditions, you think you need a teacher to create resentment in you for the Israelis? Like, how, like, what? It, it takes only like one step backwards to think. And so after uh, Israel produces a, a famine of biblical proportions, uh, makes Gaza uninhabitable, what kind of education curriculum? are you gonna bring in and make the people who went through that uh, believe that actually it was all okay? I mean, it, it, there doesn't seem to be a, it's, again, it's, it's very hard to know how the public has reacted in Gaza to Hamas in the wake of October 7th, because obviously it's different. It, it, it's not all, it's, it's, Gaza is not a monolith. The Palestinian people are not a monolith. Um, at the same time though, uh, there's a completely legitimate argument uh, that they should be blaming 
Hamas for putting themselves in this. Hamas knew what it was going to trigger on October 7th and understood the response that it was going to trigger. And it does always understand the response that it's going to trigger. It's intentional. Uh, and, and that, I mean, in terms of where the blame is laid in the last couple of months, in the last, at least the last, you know, since October 7th, um, that that has to be part of the equation. And I think yeah. that a lot of the indoctrination is to prevent that. Um, and it, it's not to say that there aren't, obviously, there are legitimate grievances that people have uh, in Gaza against right. Israel. There's no question about it. But, um, I, I mean, that's a, an important part of this puzzle. And I think that's why the Hamas propaganda comes in and tries to sort of be the, the block. Right. But the Palestinian uh, Palestinians have seen this movie before in, in some ways. And so they they know where this is going. So back in back in the early '80s, when uh, Israel invaded Lebanon to clear the Palestinian Liberation Organization, the PLO, out of out of Beirut, you know, after you know indiscriminate bombing of mm -hmm. of Beirut, after massacres, after huge huge numbers of civilian casualties, uh, PLO basically waved the white flag and said, you know, we will leave we will leave Beirut. And the Lebanese population at the time was like good, like because this has brought this like massive like catastrophe onto us. And so there were a lot of there, there were a lot of uh, Lebanese who were, who kind of turned against the PLO. The PLO asked uh, the United Nations, the United States to bring in kind of, you know, peacekeepers and an international force to protect the civilian population. The U.S. Said, uh, on, on at the request of Israel said, no, we're not going to do that. But but we will take Israel's word that if you leave, there will not be you know, civilian massacres. Hmm. And uh, the PLO uh, took them at their word. Uh, as soon as they, as soon as the PLO shipped out of the port oh, yeah. uh, in Beirut, uh, all of the foreign monitors left. Israeli forces came in, uh, leveled the place, and like horrifying civilian massacres and, hmm. and a decades-long, or almost decades-long occupation followed. And so the, as this started going on, the Lebanese people started thinking, well, hold on a second, maybe we, like maybe we don't actually want the only people who are capable of fighting back leaving. So I think that is also something that's playing out oh, totally. in, in Gaza. Like, yeah. yeah, they don't, they don't, you know, a lot of Palestinians do obviously are finding themselves in a, a situation of hell on earth. But if, if Hamas just leaves, do they, do they trust that Israel is going to come in and just peacefully rebuild the place? No, they and don't. And again, that's where we get into quagmire territory, and it's where we get into this question of, like, how have they proven, how has anyone in the United States proven that the eradication, the destruction of Hamas is possible here? Right, what does Short, that mean? I, I mean, right. I, in all sincerity. And so we, without having that, um, it looks like, you know, it's it's headed for, there's, there's nothing that's going to happen right now that's breaking any cycle. Right. It's just not going to be, it's not breaking the cycle. It's, it's perpetuating the cycle. Nothing here is going to change. And we have no plan to anything that will change because you're not eradicating Hamas. You're not destroying yeah. Hamas. And if you do, say you do that, uh, what comes into the vacuum, we also have absolutely no plan for except for more violence. The only people that seem to have a plan, the only faction that seems to have a plan are the ones who say, we're just going to lock this completely down mm -hmm. and we're going to basically empty out the population one way or the other of the Gaza Strip. Right. Which will then only leave uh, a, a handful of West Bank uh, regions to just keep under perpetual lockdown. Like mm -hmm. that, that's the, that's the only end game that seems to make any sense. And I'm, I'm using the word sense uh, in, a, in a neutral way, I like not, not as something that 
anybody ought to support. But anything else, any other endgame does not seem plausible given what's being done. Right. No, I mean, I agree. Then what's worse is that we're not being given anything clear anyway. And that's because they know. I mean, it's like it's a completely futile exercise to say, like, oh, yes, we have this very clear path to peace. Uh, we have very clear path to, uh, you know, a better situation. There isn't one. And that's why we're not hearing. Right. It. And the roughly even uh, populations between Israel and the Palestinian uh, territories uh, means that you'd have to have a huge either outflow of population elsewhere mm -hmm. uh, into other Middle Eastern countries or the deaths of hundreds of thousands of, of people in order for Israel to be actually able to carry out an occupation. Because if you have a population of seven, eight million trying to occupy a population of seven to eight million, you can't do that you know, sustainably and indefinitely because you also have, need those seven million people to run an economy and to be a country. It's you no, can't just be a prison. It's no minor difference between Biden and Netanyahu. Biden's saying two-state solution, two-state solution, and Netanyahu saying, I'm not budging on this, period. There's no two-state solution. Basically, to have the two leaders say that within such close proximity to each other on the same day, again, it's not surprising if you follow both of these governments, but um, it's it should be shocking uh, to the, the sort of conscience of where this hot war, hot conflict yeah. is going in the near future. And to finish up with Elon Musk, you, we can put this last element up. Uh, Musk had suggested that he was going to make Starlink available to uh, yeah. Gaza humanitarian outfits. Right. Uh, the uh, uh, Israel pushed back and said, no, do not do not do that because Hamas will end up using Starlink. Uh, and so it, it, Israel has now told uh, Elon Musk that Starlink can only operate in Gaza uh, with its approval. You know, their quote is basically, you know, any operation of Starlink within uh, Israel you know, must have the permission of Israel, and that includes Gaza, mm -hmm. which contradicts their kind of earlier claims that Gaza is like independent and that they've left it. Right. Well, I mean, just a, the, you know, we're what we're almost two months into this hot conflict. We're coming up on the first week mm -hmm. of December, which will make it two months. And, uh, you know, the New York Times had a staggering, again, not particularly surprising, but a staggering report on the proportion uh, the apparent proportion of civilian deaths in this, right. this conflict. Because so women and children are making up like 80%. From, yeah, a, yeah I mean, from a, several different ways that people have, have sort of crunched these numbers. And uh, analysts have looked right. at them. And it is, it, it, by what the information we have available right now, it, it does not compare favorably to other conflicts. It does not compare favorably to Fallujah. Uh, the U.S. prosecution of the Iraq war in Fallujah, even there where there's high civilian casualties, what we're seeing right now appears to be uh, a, a really, really, a much worse proportion of civilian right. deaths to militant deaths to fighter deaths. Um, it's hard to know. I get it. These these numbers are difficult. Although, Ryan, you guys yeah. at The Intercept have uh, actually, earlier right. in the conflict, you were able to, to validate right. some of the numbers that were coming out. But uh, all that is to say, when you have that situation juxtaposed with the lack of direction uh, from these governments, the the lack of clear uh, sort of paths forward, it's just, it's a disaster. And, and we might find, and how horrifying is this, that the proportion of civilian casualties carried out by the Israeli assault on Gaza will be higher than the proportion of civilian uh, murders by Hamas on October 7th. And that is not at all to do defend or minimize what Hamas did on October 7th, what it, what it does do 
is it puts in context the brutality of what Israel is doing here. If Hamas even had a lower proportion of civilian deaths in, in what we all agree was a horrifying atrocity, then what does this count as? Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Need an easy button to feed your baby? Baby Bretza's Formula Pro Advanced makes a perfectly mixed warm formula bottle automatically at the push of a button. No air bubbles, no fuss. Literally, choose your temp, select your ounces, push start, and you're done. Works with virtually all formulas and bottles. Say goodbye to the 3 a.m. feeding chaos and hello to this revolutionary stress-free solution. Raising a baby is hard enough. Let Baby Bretza make feeding a breeze. Get your Formula Pro Advanced at babybrezza.com. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Ryan, uh, on this question of a ceasefire, there's new reporting in The Intercept about how Democrats in Congress are, are handling the question of where we go from here. Yeah. Take us through a little bit of what you guys have learned from Bernie Sanders yesterday yes. when he was questioned by Daniel Boguslaw. Yep, Senate Democrats yesterday met and uh, discussed whether or not to condition aid uh, to Israel. Uh, my colleague uh, Boguslaw talked to Bernie Sanders ahead of time, and, and Sanders said that, you can put up this uh, element here, I think it's C1, uh, said that, that he was considering uh, forcing a vote onto the Senate floor uh, condition, conditioning aid. Now, this comes as uh, Senator Peter Welsh, uh, the other senator from Vermont, has called for an indefinite ceasefire. Uh, Representative Becca Ballant, who's the only member of the House uh, from Vermont, has called for a ceasefire and has signed on to that resolution, leaving Bernie Sanders as the only elected official uh, from Vermont who has not uh, called for a ceasefire. And so the question then becomes, what what would Sanders do uh, with regard to this this uh, this vote on conditioning aid. Now, if if uh, any, if Sanders is watching this uh, or if any of his staff are watching this, there actually is only one way that I know of to force a vote on conditioning aid, and that's the for, uh, Foreign Service Act section, subsection 502B. And uh, it, I think it's only been used once in 50, in 50 years, and it's different than the Leahy Law. The Leahy Law says mm-hmm. uh, that the United States government uh, cannot give military assistance, security assistance to units that are engaged in human rights abuses. But that's only enforceable by the State Department, and the State Department obviously has no intention of enforcing that at the moment. There is a provision in that uh, under 502B that would allow any senator, and then, so we're not just talking to Bernie Sanders or anybody in the Senate. We'll ask Ted Cruz if he wants to introduce this when he yeah. comes here uh, later today. Any senator can put a privileged resolution on the floor that uh, it has to sit in the uh, committee for 10 days. After 10 days, it can come out of the committee, and then you vote on it. Uh, if it passes uh, the Senate, it would force then the State Department to 
to take 30 days to conduct a, a study of whether or not uh, Israel is engaged in a pattern of human rights abuses. And if they are, then a congressional resolution of disapproval uh, would be privileged, would get a vote on the floor. So Sanders actually does have a path. Like he can do this if, if he is serious about wanting to put people on the record on the question of uh, funding unchecked human rights abuses. So the day after Thanksgiving, he said he told reporters that conditioning aid is, quote, a worthwhile thought and said, I don't think if I started off with that. This is Biden. Th oh, this is Biden. Yeah, yeah. Okay, great. So he said we'd have ever gotten to where we are today, which was to your point earlier in the show about mm -hmm. Biden's argument. So even Biden is For there. what he like, said publicly versus what he said It seems privately. like Bernie, Bernie's not willing to go further than Biden, it seems like. But I think that also reflects Bernie's stance on this, that he thinks this is sort of a, a tactical um, I don't want to say neutrality, but almost this sort of neutrality on the question of a ceasefire, not a neutrality on the mm -hmm. conflict, but this question of a ceasefire that it, it's helpful um, to have a public stance that allows you some more wiggle room privately. Yeah, I think Bernie has just really dug in. Yeah. Um, and he's not someone who is, you know, who, who really takes pressure from the left well. <laughs> Like right. he, he doesn't. I mean, he doesn't take pressure well from anybody. He's he's very he's an he's an independent-minded person. You talk about some of that uh, in the book that I, you I have do, right yes. here in the squad. <laughs> go go get the go get the book, and uh, you know he, he a lot of his family was wiped out uh, in the Holocaust. Yeah. Uh, he 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 took you know from people close to him. You know he took the October seventh massacres. You know extremely uh, mm -hmm. hard. Mm -hmm. As as I think it's easy to say that we all did. But, you know, I think for, for, for some, you know, who have that, yeah. that experience, that, that experience and that heritage, you know, it, it, it just hits, it hits even, even harder. Incredibly visceral. Uh, and so it was, it was visceral for him. And then, and he is, he, he is not, like I said, he's not somebody that responds, you know, to, well to pressure from the left. So you, you've, you've just seen him kind of digging in and then you've seen kind of the left, uh, you know, pushing harder and harder on him because there's such a dissonance between the, the Bernie Sanders that people think they know and the Bernie Sanders of, of this moment. So this is a live question now. If he says he's considering um, the, the bare minimum, which is to say our security assistance should not be used for what we all acknowledge are human rights abuses so, like, and international war crimes. Like that should that shouldn't be a difficult step for him to take. Now, you've been <laughs> following John Fetterman very closely throughout his, his young political career, mm -hmm. but especially over the last couple of months. We can put this next element up on the screen here. Uh, obviously, people have uh, seen the images of John Fetterman. Oh, not this one. The, from I think the, we got the VO. Oh, but, right. So, so this is John Fetterman. Uh, Ryan's going to get into this in a second. But if you're looking at the screen right now, this is some background, uh, some yeah. really helpful context and background on John Fetterman's approach to the question of Israel, uh, super PAC support, APAC support, and all of that. So let's take a look at this VO, and then yeah. Ryan, you can walk us through some of the background. This is John Fetterman's office where he has, uh, speaking of you know, incredibly visceral reactions that a lot of Jewish Americans especially have had to October 7th, this is uh, pictures of the hostages on the wall of John, John Fetterman's Senate office. Now John Fetterman, as we've talked about a little bit here, is, is definitely, Ryan, a man of the left, uh, has mm -hmm. been. Uh, he has Supported Bernie in 2016, right. Sort of populist left. Mm -hmm. This is, he's not just sort of cautiously like Bernie. 
uh, staking out a different position from the left on this. He was draped in the Israeli flag at the demonstration, the pro-Israel demonstration here in D.C. recently, and he has done that not just literally but also rhetorically uh, and with his votes throughout the course of the last couple of months. Uh, give us a little bit more background about, as people just saw up on their screen, the Connor Lamb um, dilemma, the super PACs that came into the race. What's, what explains John Fetterman? In fact, we can put the tweet up yeah. from Ryan, uh, because Ryan has been uh, following this on Twitter. Um, yeah, th this, right, this comes from my my new uh, book that's out uh, ne next week. And so during the uh, 2022 campaign, when he was running for Senate, you know, he had to he had to fend off not just a primary challenge, but also a Republican because it's a swing district. And so I'll just read a little bit of that. Fetterman was locked in what threatened to be a tight primary race with Representative Connor Lamb for the Senate nomination. Lamb's campaign was openly pleading for super PAC support to put him over the top. Early in the year, Jewish Insider reported Mark Melman, who was the head of DMFI, had reached out to Fetterman with questions about his position on Israel. That's the Democratic majority for Israel. Uh, Democratic activist uh, Brett Goldman told Jewish Insider, quote, he's never come out and said that he's not a supporter of Israel, but the perception is that he aligns with the squad more than anything else. So Melman said the Fetterman campaign responded to his inquiry and, quote, came with an interest in learning about the issues. Following the meeting, the campaign reached out again. Then they sent us a position paper, which we thought was very strong, Melman said, but it wasn't quite strong enough. Jewish Insider reported that DMFI emailed back some comments on the paper, which, quote, Fetterman was receptive to addressing in a second draft, unquote. In April, Fetterman agreed to do an interview with Jewish Insider, quote, I want to go out of my way, he said, to make sure that it's absolutely clear that the views that I hold in no way go along the lines of some of the more fringe or extreme wings of our party. I would also respectfully say that I'm not really a progressive in that sense. Fetterman unprompted, stressed that there should be zero conditions on military aid to Israel, that BDS, which is boycott, the boycott movement toward Israel, that BDS was wrong, and so on. He's, quote, let me just say this, even if I'm asked or not, I was dismayed by the Iron Dome vote, he added. As a result, uh, DMFI and APAC stayed out of his race. Now, I think some of this goes to explain his, where, where, where he has wound up on this issue, because he has both a Democratic primary to worry about uh, or at the time, and now he has a general election to worry about next time he runs in Pennsylvania Senate. But I do not think it explains everything hmm. because he's he's been kind of the most vocal yeah, he's, advocate of Israel. Like, it's clearly a sincere. There's something more going on than, than just just this. Well, and I can imagine, uh, you know, it, it, the, the pictures of the hostages, for example, we were just talking about how incredibly visceral the uh, witnessing what happened on October 7th was for a lot of people who, who descend from Holocaust survivors, whose families, as you mentioned, Bernie Sanders, where a lot of his family was wiped out. Um, you know, the, the hostages here are, are really, I, I completely understand him putting their pictures up in the in, mm -hmm. in his office. I mean, that is, uh, you know, the the enduring, um, not even symbol because it's beyond symbolic. I mean, it, it is symbolic, but it is the enduring um, symbol and the enduring, you know, example of Hamas's specific cul culpability in October seventh. Mm -hmm. John Fetterman, on the other hand, though, for the, the sort of the the way that he's handled this. Uh, it is really, really interesting that he seems to almost relish right. um, being anti 
populist left when he so relished being pro-populist left in the rest of his campaign. He, he really wasn't shy. And I actually think that's why he won. I think he's the sort of model uh, electoral populist. And I don't mean that, you know, in any, right. I mean that in a, a sort of like a literal sense that uh, the path for populist victory, as I see it, is you're not, not pretending you aren't in favor of Medicare for all, not pretending that you have a, a more centrist position on any of these issues. So for, for Fetterman, it is particularly interesting for him. Right. And right. I think, uh, you know, calling for the hostages to be released, I think, is is something that I, basically everybody can agree with, like mm -hmm. release the hostages. Yeah. Uh, it's it's the inability, it seems, or the unwillingness to say anything about or anything significant about the catastrophe in Gaza. Right. That's the part I think that, that has people kind of shaken that like, wow, like, OK, you want to wear an Israeli flag at the at the rally, okay? You know, you want to, you know, you want to. He even uh, he saw anti-war protesters on the street, a bunch of veterans getting arrested, yeah. And he waved an Israeli flag like in their face as they were getting arrested. I'm like, all right, that's a little bit over the top, but I get it. But if you, but if you couple that with at least expressions of concern mm -hmm. for the Palestinians facing a, a slaughter uh, that is kind of orders of magnitude greater than than what happened on October 7th uh, then it, then at least you 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 re you can sense the humanity in the situation yeah i mean hamas yeah. should release the hostages it, there shouldn't have to be a negotiation right. hamas should release the hostages you can condemn hamas but also condemn collective punishment of 2 million people this is you know so the the house of representatives took a vote last night on an resolution um, that was billed as basically just a pro-Israel resolution and an anti-Holocaust like resolution, a very just like sort of symbolic <clears throat> gesture that the House does uh, every so often. Two votes uh, were not for it. One was a present vote from Rashida Tlaib. The other was an outright no from Thomas Massey, who took issue, reasonably so, with a part of the bill that reads, um, it rejects or it's, it's, it recognizes, the House of Representatives recognizes that denying Israel's right to exist is a form of anti-Semitism. Massey said, I'm voting no on the resolution uh, because it equates anti-Zionism with anti-Semitism. Anti-Semitism is deplorable, but expanding it to include the criticism of Israel is not helpful. And the reason I brought that up is just because two things can be true at the same time. We can have two different positions or two, two positions on different issues at the same time and acting like they're constantly mutually exclusive. I get having priorities. I get that the priorities and, you know, the, I think the priorities here should be the hostages. Again, that's why I understand Fetterman having them on his wall. That can be true. <coughs> And it can also be true that as the New York Times documented this week, the proportion of civilian casualties is disgusting and unacceptable. You don't have to pick one or the other. Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Since every minute counts when you're a new parent, who wants to waste time washing bottles? 
Transform this daily chore with the Baby Bretza Bottle Washer Pro, the first machine that automatically washes, sterilizes, and dries bottles, pump parts, and sippy cups at the push of a button. Its 20 spray jets clean everything 100%. Plus, it sterilizes with steam, then dries with germ-free air. Don't waste time on tedious hand washing. Let the Baby Bretza Bottle Washer Pro do it for you. Shop now at babybrezza.com. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Let's move on to Nikki Haley. <laughs> Nikki Haley scored the coveted Koch Brothers endorsement yesterday when the conservative group Americans for Prosperity came out and gave her their seal of approval in the 2024 presidential election. We can go ahead and put the first the first element up on the screen here. So this is a headline from the New York Times. Koch Network endorses Nikki Haley in bid to push GOP past Trump. All right, Ryan, this is actually pretty interesting. Let's let's roll DeSantis's reaction here. This is another tear sheet. The DeSantis camp reacted by putting out a press release immediately that said the DeSantis campaign congratulates Donald Trump on securing the Coke endorsement. Congrats to Donald Trump on securing the Coke endorsement. Like clockwork, the pro-open borders, pro-jailbreak bill establishment is lining up behind a moderate who has no mathematical pathway of defeating the former president. Every dollar spent on Nikki Haley's candidacy <coughs> should be reported as an in-kind to the Trump campaign. That's from the DeSantis comms director, Andrew Romeo. And I will add, Ryan, it is pretty interesting uh, for a couple of reasons. One, it's a Pete Amy 2020 mm-hmm. move. It's an attempt to consolidate the field because in a state like New Hampshire and actually even in Iowa, if you put together the anti-Trump votes for other candidates, uh, that will generally, in polling, uh, that means Trump will have a much harder time. Uh, you, you don't have Trump over that 50% threshold in early states. So if you can consolidate the votes, then you can have this like last gasp attempt uh, to you know get get in and, mm-hmm. and potentially undermine Trump. Nikki Haley is a hawk. The Kochs are not. Right. Americans for Prosperity um, and Stand Together, the broader Koch network, are not hawkish on foreign policy. They have this very sort of traditional libertarian approach to foreign policy and to immigration uh, as the DeSantis campaign slammed the pro-open borders Americans for Prosperity. And that brings me to the third point, which is that this is highly uh, sort of unusual but not in any way surprising because over the course of the last 10 years, Americans for Prosperity went from being a really consensus celebrated Tea Party group to being what now is decried uh, by one of the, the leading presidential campaigns as pro-open borders, uh, blah, blah, blah. The DeSantis campaign seemed quite salty there. Were they hoping that they were going to get the Coke endorsement? I don't think so. And I, I actually don't think anybody really wants it. Mm-hmm. Um, but on the other hand, uh, the New York Times lays out how it could be helpful for Nikki Haley, who has this sur- somewhat of a surge in New Hampshire, where she's basically overtaken DeSantis in some polls mm-hmm. in New Hampshire. Um, and she's, you know, feels like she's on a surge in states like Iowa, South Carolina. Obviously, now that Tim Scott has dropped out, that's extremely helpful to her in early states. So 
that comes with AFP's infrastructure. And so the one thing that Nikki Haley didn't have, you know, it doesn't matter that right. much if the, the polls are going at, you know, five points in one direction or the other, if you don't have a ground game. So this matters to the extent that it can give her a ground game. DeSantis really already has that in some of these early states, especially in Iowa. How do the Kochs square the foreign policy question there? Is like, do they, they just don't like Trump so much? They say that the, they're just, they, they'll take someone who's 180 degrees opposite of them when it comes to American adventurism abroad? I think so. This is a memo. They say, in sharp contrast to recent elections that were dominated by the negative baggage of Donald Trump and in which good candidates lost races that should have been won, Nikki Haley at the top of the ticket would boost candidates up and down the ballot. Haley is, quote, the key independent and moderate voters that Trump has no chance to win. I think that means the key to independent mm -hmm. and moderate voters. Uh, the moment we require face a tested leader with governing judgment and policy experience to pull our nation back from the brink, the country is being ripped apart by extremes on both sides, which basically... The Kochs are saying that they're upset that they're extremes on both sides yeah. after spending uh, the last three decades funding the like, extreme element of well, I mean, the Republican Party. It's kind of interesting because the extreme... They're all, they're all trying to find who did this? Like They're huge. Yeah, they were huge Tea Party funders because yeah. in the Tea Party, the question was limited government, quote, limited government. And so their hope was that, you know, I, I don't think they got behind like a Christine O'Donnell, but, you know, you can find any number of people. Uh, their hope was that these sort of cultural conservatives would keep the social conservatism, the cultural conservatism on the back burner. Um, and would, you know, they would be able to convince people, you know, to do Gang of Eight stuff. They would be able mm -hmm. to convince people, and that's a, a reference to immigration, they'd be able to convince people to do all of the pro-business stuff, get those tax cuts. They got those tax cuts, in yeah. fact, by uh, the the House and the Senate in 2017. The president, I don't know how much money they put into the presidential election, but uh, they got those Not tax much, cuts. So that's in, why Trump hates them. Yeah. Right, yeah. They, they got those tax cuts in 2017. So it depends. I mean, they're, they're pro-business extremism? Sure. On other issues, they are totally moderate, which is why it's much more easy for DeSantis to come in now and say, you know, th to try to drive a, a wedge because Nikki Haley has a, a Coke endorsement. And I actually think running ads connecting Nikki Haley to the pro-open borders Coke network is not helpful to her whatsoever in Iowa or New Hampshire. And we also have a very bizarre debate coming up uh, <laughs> between two people who sort of are running for president. Uh, one of them is an official candidate for president, Ron DeSantis, who I think most people have forgotten is kind of still running. Yeah. But he's still, he hasn't dropped out. This is the next element, by and the way. From the, the other one is Gavin Newsom, who is not an official candidate for president, but kind of, I think people kind of take his candidacy at this point more seriously than they take Ron DeSantis's on, on the other side. Newsom's not going to do anything unless, some, unless Biden either you know, fades out decides he's not going to run at the last minute or, or drops out. We we have like weeks left yeah. for that to even be remotely possible. And so to position himself in this kind of war for uh, the kind of uh, second, you know, second tier position to uh, get with, with Kamala Harris and with others, there's going to be this debate, I guess. Why are they doing this? Well, an economist a journalist, you just saw that economist element on the screen, the presidential matchup that isn't referring to uh, DeSantis and Newsom. Uh, they asked Newsom why uh, people should watch this debate between a uh, presidential candidate and a governor who is not currently running for anything. And he said, quote, I don't know they should. Right. <laughs> and uh, so are they doing this debate I endorse or they not this doing sentiment. This you know, it's supposed to be on Thursday. Right. 
it has been scheduled before and it has been nixed before. And it's obviously a kind of a question for the RNC too, if you want your one of your presidential candidates participating in this sort of extracurricular debate in the middle of debate season. There's another debate obviously coming up next week um, on the, the 6th. Um, that's going to be in Tuscaloosa at the University of Alabama. So it's just a strange situation. I don't think anybody really wants it. I'm sure it'll be interesting because Newsom I mean, in particular, you know, yeah. Newsom in particular is a showman. Uh, DeSantis really is not a showman. <laughs> but if you want to see a clash of the sort of younger standard bearers of the centrist Democrats, uh, I guess he tries to be a sort of progressive uh, in spirit. Uh, so if you want to see the clash between a, a spiritual progressive. <laughs> and I think what he really channels is like the id of the Democratic resistance that wants yeah. to see kind of Republicans rhetorically punch in the face. Agree. Probably Agree. actually literally sometimes. Yeah. Uh, and so people loved his uh, interview with Hannity where he really, you know, really gave it to Hannity. Uh, it doesn't matter like kind of what the response is in some of these debates. What I'm realizing is that people just want kind of mean and clever things said to the face of the opposition, no matter yeah. what the opposition, like the opposition can have a great retort or not. But as long as you kind of throw that first punch, then people are like, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I want these sort of ideas to clash in public as much as is humanly possible. And I've talked about this before, like the famous John Stewart moment where he told Tucker Carlson <laughs> and Paul Begala that Crossfire was like ruining America. And everyone sort of clapped and cheered and, and said, this is exactly what we needed. I've always disagreed with that. I think um, that is, it's not helpful to push these conversations and to, to not be able to model public debate, uh, even, you know, among people who disagree with each other, who hate each other, and uh, even among people who get really theatrical with it and make it into a show. I mean, I think that's important for the public to see. I think it's important for people in politics to be able to do, like even just going through the motions, um, I think is important. And to see the clash of ideas, I think is important. So I'm, I'm glad that they're doing it, but it's extremely weird. And I think it just speaks to the fact that Gavin Newsom knows that anything could happen to Joe Biden at any given moment. Ron DeSantis knows that. Uh, he knows the same thing could be true of Donald Trump, who is facing four yeah, indictments. That's, that's um, true. Everyone's and, just hanging out, hoping. And people are, yeah, people are desperate. Hoping for the worst. Desperate to find anything that just completely removes Donald Trump from the race, uh, at least his name from the ballot, even though he would still loom heavily over yeah. the race. So uh, that's where we are right now. Nobody likes the situation between the presidential matchups. And I really also don't think anybody likes the situation between <laughs> Newsom and DeSantis. Uh, so that's, but this is what we get. The United States Senate is trying to find money for Ukraine and to do so, Emily, they're turning to immigration policy. Tell us what's going on with these negotiations. Yeah. So again, obviously when we were covering what happened with Kevin McCarthy and ended in the speakership of Mike Johnson, yeah. again, he continues, we will bring you updates week by week on whether Mike Johnson continues to be a real person. <laughs> he is in fact a real person. We can confirm Still that speaker. as of this week, we'll bring you an update next week if that changes. But uh, Mike Johnson is now in the situation of basically negotiating against the government shutdown. He wants to do sort of a tiered omnibus system, uh, what they call it, ladder, mm -hmm. right? which is, is new. You've never seen that in all your time covering I Congress, so, yeah. I imagine. Yeah, it's, a, it's sort of a, a legislative parliamentary innovation. Um, but one of the ways that Republicans are, are trying to force Democrats to the table is making them pass what was H.R. 2 in the House, a very tough immigration bill that I think actually probably would have been a consensus left-right 
type of legislation 20 years ago, but no longer is because we have massive waves of migrants like we've never seen before uh, coming up through Central America and into Mexico. And so it's now a political football in a way it wouldn't have been before. It reforms the asylum system. Uh, there may be a bargaining chip, and I say that in a way that it's a tragedy that I'm saying it, but there may be a bargaining chip with DACA immigrants, mm -hmm. uh, which is constantly- like DACA would get a pathway to citizenship, but nobody else would. Right, but will Republicans let uh, a pathway to citizenship for the DACA kids, who are not really kids anymore, uh, become- 30s and 40s now. Yes, so all that is to say, Republicans think, rightfully, it's pathetic that Democrats um, support the Biden administration's immigration policy, and a lot of this does need to go through Congress because the Biden administration is just acting with executive authority that can be reformed via Congress. And so they're saying, this is our demand. This is our bargaining chip. This is our, uh, this is our condition for passing your omnibus budget deal to avoid a government shutdown. Mike Johnson wants to push it into January. Um, there's not a lot of time to figure this out, basically. Right, and so Chris Murphy is uh, the Democrat leading the negotiations uh, on the Senate side. Murphy, though, his priority is Ukraine funding. Right. And so you're hearing a lot of anger from uh, uh, folks, like particularly uh, Pablo Manriquez uh, has, been, uh, report, has been reporting this on Capitol Hill, saying that so the uh, Hispanic senators are not, not happy having uh, Chris Murphy kind of giving away the farm on, on immigration in order to get Ukraine money. At the same time, though, you've got then the uh, Republicans on the right in the House thinking that there's not enough in the Senate immigration provision. Right. So w where is this going to head? Yeah, I mean, th that's one of the big remaining questions. And actually, uh, we can put the element up, the next element up on the screen here. This is the Associated Press's coverage. <clears throat> Republicans want to pair security with aid, border security with aid for Ukraine. Here's why that makes the deal so tough. Uh, it's about also immigration and enforcement, so funding. And this is where Biden has definitely come to the table. And this is what's really upsetting uh, some of the Republicans in the kind of Freedom Caucus circles and mm -hmm. conservative movement circles. Uh, Biden is saying basically, that I'm going to come to the table on funding, you know, CBP. I'm going to come to the table. I'm going to fund Border Patrol. I'm going to fund all of these security measures. For, buy more four-wheelers. Right, for the border. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Uh, and so that gives Biden a huge rhetorical win. He can say that he struck a deal with Republicans because you need a filibuster-proof majority in the Senate for this to pass. Obviously, Republicans control the House. So you would, you, obviously, Democrats have a huge contingency in the House, but you would need a lot of Republicans. It would have to be a bipartisan deal in the House as well. So Biden can strike a deal with Republicans that lets him say he supported tougher border, a tougher border policy. Um, and all of that comes without reforming asylum law, which if you follow the immigration issue closely, whether you're on the left or on the right, without changes to our asylum law, there will continue to be a humanitarian crisis at the border. That is it, the bottom line. That's Game over. Uh, th there's no period. There's no other question uh, that you can even bring up in that space. So the sort of Freedom Caucus people that pushed out Kevin McCarthy and are sort of, you know, begrudgingly swallowing the Mike Johnson pill are furious because they give gives Biden a rhetorical win on border security without actually doing a damn thing for the border. Now, let's put this quote up on the screen. This is uh, exclusive to us here at CounterPoints. Breaking points, this is from a senior Senate staffer who told us last night. Republican side. Right? Republican yeah. Senate staffer. It's not about the border. It's about a fig leaf for funding Ukraine. 
And that's how Mitch McConnell, um, I, I, I kind of joked with the source. I was like, I'm just going to attribute this to Mitch McConnell uh, because that's, mm -hmm. Mitch McConnell right. is probably saying that in private. Right. Like, this is our fig leaf for funding Ukraine. It's transparently obvious. That's what they're doing. Right. right. They want money for Ukraine. They have to figure out a way that they can get Republicans to feel good about voting for it. And so go after immigrants a little tiny bit. Right. And this is, again, from the AP piece. They were saying Biden's emergency request to Congress included aid for Ukraine, Israel, and other U.S. allies, along with $14 billion to bolster the immigration system and border security. So, again, it's about the Israel emergency request, too. And that was a huge uh, sort of dust-up with J.D. Vance in the, on the Senate side, uh, who was specifically saying they're trying to tie Ukraine to Israel because they know that there's support right. for Israel funding and that support for more and more money to Ukraine is really becoming difficult for them to sell back home. Right. So they're just trying to find things that you can rope to Ukraine funding and kind of drag it through Congress. Right. Uh, already you've got uh, Heritage Action. We can put up this third element here. You've got Heritage Action, you know, right, uh, right wing uh, organization saying HR2 is the only solution to securing the border. It's the kind of a preemptive shot at these at these negotiations. And they're warning that what the Senate Republicans are are coming up with is too moderate and should not be kind of enough of a carrot to drag Ukraine funding across the finish line. Yeah, and I want to read this uh, article from The Hill just as of yesterday. They say no government funding bills are scheduled to hit the House floor this week. And their headline is actually GOP faces ominous signs in effort to avoid January shutdown. Um, basically, so this is the emergency funding request, but it's all tied together because these are all different chips. And they're all different pieces of the puzzle to get to uh, a funded government. Uh, because if Mike Johnson is gone in the middle of this negotiation, which is totally possible because there's still one person, person motion to vacate, uh, then you go into a shutdown. And I, like, I don't think Democrats, I mean, the the incentive for Democrats is like they, it's shutdowns are a gift to them politically. So they don't have a ton right. of incentive. It doesn't look great for Biden. You know, they, they obviously want to avoid that. But Republicans always get blamed for shutdown, sometimes reasonably so, because Republicans say, please blame us for the shutdown. Like, look at us. We shut down the government. So the incentives to actually make a deal on this, uh, both politically and on the policy front, are basically zero. Right. And this is all happening as we've gotten new uh, revelations over the last few days that the negotiations that were taking place in Turkey between Ukraine and Russia in March of 22 uh, were actually as close uh, to reaching a peace deal as as some people suspected at the time. Uh, later, torpedoed basically, you know, by the U.S. and by the U.K. That famous Boris Johnson visit to Kiev, mm. in which he uh, pushed Zelensky to, uh, you know, to to not sign any truce agreement. The question of whether uh, you know, Russia was serious about it and, and would have been willing uh, to actually uh, reach a, a truce at that, that point remains open. Uh, but the, what we're hearing from, uh, you know, a, a key leader in the Ukrainian negotiations is that it was extremely, it was extremely close at the time, that Russia at the moment was looking for a way out. Now here we are almost two, what, two years later uh, with the U.S. trying to figure out how to kind of uh, jam up Congress to push through, you know, tens of billions of more. Uh, f for a war that has seen, you know, uh, so ma so many uh, people killed on each side.
And yeah, I mean, we can just kind of end with this quote from Mario Diaz-Balart. So The Hill writes, as the funding fight drags on, senior appropriators worry that the House GOP will be weak on footing, will be on weak footing in interchamber negotiations if the conference continues to struggle with clearing its conservative spending bills. Uh, Diaz-Balart says, my goal is to move the most conservative bills we can out of the House to put us in the best possible negotiation position with the Senate. But if we can't pass, we don't get the Republican votes to do conservative bills. H.R. 2 was a bill that the House mm -hmm. Republicans passed earlier. That's one of those bills that uh, kind of fits into that strategy. So this is all connected and it's all a disaster. All right. <laughs> That's basically all you need to know. There you go. Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Since every minute counts when you're a new parent, who wants to waste time washing bottles? Transform this daily tour with the Baby Bretza Bottle Washer Pro. The first machine that automatically washes, sterilizes, and dries bottles, pump parts, and sippy cups at the push of a button. Its 20 spray jets clean everything 100%. Plus, it sterilizes with steam, then dries with germ-free air. Don't waste time on tedious hand washing. Let the Baby Bretza Bottle Washer Pro do it for you. Shop now at babybretza.com. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Ryan, I don't know if you found this Black Friday stats, these Black Friday yeah, stats. Yeah, interesting stuff going on here. It really is interesting. And I was actually specifically curious to hear your thoughts on it because uh, it seems pretty troubling. And we, we have covered a couple of times, for example, credit card delinquency spiking. Uh, it was one of those really frightening indicators of where the economy yeah. could be going. We got more of that uh, yeah. just from Black Friday data. Yeah, some interesting contradictions in, in, in this economy. Uh, most people who are experiencing it or in the economy are telling pollsters uh, that they feel like it's much worse than it has been uh, in recent years, yet we continue to keep getting data points, you know, suggesting that people are feeling good about it. One of them, uh, is you can put this up here, from Business Insider, Americans broke a record for spending on Black Friday, and then it's, but it's just hiding a bigger problem for the economy. Now, consumer spending is often looked at by economists as a gauge for how people are genuinely feeling about the economy. 2008, 2009, 2010, people really pulled back their, their dining out and their, and their spending in general because they felt much more precarious than they had 2007, 2006. And they're, and they're squirreling money away for you know, potentially getting laid off uh, and, all, and, for, and you know, for other calamities that they see coming as a result of the economy. You're not seeing that at this point. You're seeing spending you know, remain robust. But then there are these other problems underneath the economy. Let's, what, what do you make of those? Yeah, I mean, this is so the data is actually from Adobe. Um, and there's this new I mean, it's not entirely new. People have seen it for years, probably mm -hmm. by now. Pay later function on Layaway. websites. 
Yeah, it's yeah, exactly. It's digital lightweight. Um, so this is from Business Insider. They say, according to Adobe, which tracks online sales, online shopping on Black Friday totaled $9.8 billion, which was actually up 7.8% from last year. That's kind of part of why this is concerning. Adobe estimates U.S. shoppers will further spend as much as $12.4 billion on Cyber Monday. Um, though, that said... They continue, while the increase in spending was predicted for the holiday season, what is worrisome is how Americans are paying for the items. Many are paying via buy now, pay later platforms such as Klarna or Afterpay, which you see when you're online shopping, obviously, when you're checking out. Um, they say compared to last year, Klarna observed nearly a 30% increase in orders placed by U.S. shoppers on Black Friday this year on items such as food mixers, TVs, and coffee makers. And that's according to data that they shared with Business Insider. Uh, that's a 30% increase. Now, according to Adobe, they say buy now, pay later financing was up 47% overall this Black Friday compared to last year in 2022. About 10% of purchases on the day after Thanksgiving used buy now, pay later. Now, obviously that could be because these options have gotten easier to use. There's no question about it. They're they're easier, they're uh, hmm. quicker, they're more efficient. The sort of digital layaways become much more seamless. It's so much more fun to do it that way. You're like, oh wait, I just have to pay $100 a month <laughs> right. for a little while. A TV, right. That seems better than this. Right. Yeah. You can get a nice But you TV. keep doing that and then boom. Yes, and that's, so one of the interesting things is they said Black Friday sp spending may have been higher because spending prior right. to Black Friday was lower, meaning people are looking specifically to shop deals uh, because they feel like they need to shop deals. And obviously, um, you know, Black Friday deals are, are great and yeah. Cyber Monday deals are great. But it's definitely an indicator if that's shooting up and you have <clears throat> slower spending in the run-up compared to other years. And then the spike, both in credit card delinquencies and a spike to 47%, I mean, that efficiency alone does not explain right. that. I think one of the best insights into what's going on in this economy comes from this uh, new report by uh, Lydia DePillis, highlighted by Jeff Stein of the Washington Post. If we can put up this element here uh, for people who are just listening, it's what the economy looks like to Biden voters in swing states. And I want to zero in on the breakdown of by age. And so the question is, on the one hand, do you think the economy is excellent or good? On the other hand, do you think the economy is poor or only fair? People age 18 to 29, 11% of them call the economy excellent or good, while 89% on the other side saying it's poor or only fair. Almost unanimous from people 18 to 29. Slightly, uh, uh, slightly different for 30 to 44, but that's only 19% versus 80%. So still, overwhelmingly, people under 44 consider the economy to suck. People 65 and over, meanwhile, say 62% of them say that the economy is excellent or good. 37% say it's bad. You saw some flip idiots on Twitter saying that this was all about TikTok. Yeah. Uh, but if you look at home ownership, it also correlates here. And if you look at the uh, who has purchased a, a new home yep. in the last couple of years, uh, the average age, I think, is 58 or something yep. like that. Yep. The, the wealth exists at the top. In, in, an, in an environment... The age top, too. Right. In an environment where you had interest rates crash in 2020, down, you, a lot of people who own homes refinanced in, in 2020 down to 3% or less. And so they are now sitting on 30-year loans mm -hmm. with basically free money right. for the next 30 years. Interest rates are now in the 7 to 8% range. So 
in order for somebody to buy a house in 2023 compared to 2020 for the exact same house at say $500,000, you can do the math, but it's, you might have to pay an extra $1,000 a month. Mm -hmm. And it depends on the size of the house, the size of the mortgage. Each one of those points um, above, above 3% adds hundreds of dollars a month. Uh, and so you have all of these people who are under, you know, and even 45 to 64, 57% uh, of those uh, say the economy is poor. Yeah. So everyone under 64 thinks the economy stinks. And I think it's an expectations versus reality, uh, like meme come to life, because we have an expectation that the American dream is attainable <clears throat> to everyone, upward mobility is attainable to everyone, and the very specific rungs of that ladder are a college education, uh, and then home ownership. And home ownership comes if you look at reasons people feel like they're not getting married. Home ownership is actually listed as one of them. Student loans are actually listed as among those things. There's a ton of uncertainty this year about payment on student loans. And so you can understand why in that uncertainty people might turn to things like buy now, pay later, because you're still paying. It's not that you're not making the purchase, it's just that you're managing your finances incrementally in ways that maybe make you feel more comfortable. People say, now this is from the Business Insider article that 83% of respondents, studies have found, pay off their buy now, pay later programs on time. Although, as they note, 17% do not. And I think that also shifts the worse the economy gets, or I would yeah. expect it to shift. Uh, they write, compounding the problem is that people tend to spend more when using buy now, pay later programs, suggesting overconfidence in what they can afford. A second research paper from the Social Science Research Network found that consumers spent 20% more when buy now, pay later was offered, especially on retail items. So combine that with uh, the fact that you're, you're seeing uh, car and uh, credit card loan delinquencies spike in recent months. Not homeowner loans, which is so interesting to the mm -hmm. point that you made because the people who are buying homes right now are not in any, you know, it's, it's a very different financial situation. The economy is so uneven. I shouldn't say they're not under any financial duress, but it's a completely different bubble, basically, like economic bubble that people live in. And so if you're if you're able to buy a home right now, you're probably also not experiencing the economy in the same way that other people are, where we're seeing uh, delinquencies yeah. and spiking. It's, it's actually a really troubling time, I think. Yeah, and the one, one thing homeowners are facing is you know, increases in property taxes because of reappraisals, because you've got this situation where you, yes. when, when you have you know home values rising, but you but you're not going to sell your home because nobody can buy it. Right. But then you end up paying higher property taxes as as a result of that. Every everybody's getting squeezed. The economy is kind of broken. The the housing yes. market is is like broken because of the, the 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 fast move in interest rates, and when you have a a crunch, a shortage of housing. Uh, and you make it harder for people to purchase housing, what you also do is then decrease the number of starts. Yeah. Like it, it's counterproductive to driving down uh, uh, to driving down the cost of housing because in order to do that, you need to create more housing. Yeah. But the interest rate policy incentivizes fewer uh, housing starts. Yeah, no, it's, I mean, it's, it's, and on that note, I think it's also just the, going back to expectations versus reality, the economy is broken, broken compared to what people understood the sort of social contract in America yeah. to be. So it's, it's broken in a lot of different ways that you have these variables totally out of whack compared to where they used to be. But that also creates a situation where people say, I'm paying my taxes. I'm paying a lot of money in taxes, especially depending on where you live. And what I'm getting for, what I'm getting in return is insane costs of college 
these lingering tens of thousands of dollars. The average college student graduates with around forty thousand dollars in student yeah. loan debt, and then takes that with them in their first ten years of adult life into the workforce. So, I mean, what the hell do you expect people to do? Of course, they're using buy now, pay later. All right. Well, up next, uh, we're going to be joined by Texas Republican Senator Ted Cruz, selling in a new book called Unwoke, something about cultural Marxism. <laughs> we're going to maybe find out what that is. It's how to defeat Ryan Grimm's that's, cultural that's Marxism. Right. Yeah, good luck. To <laughs> it's, a, it's actually a book about how we can take the Lenin book off the shelf. <laughs> never, at, never happening. Yeah. <laughs> I like how he's lit up by the red, as you, as you pointed out, the Perfect. Christmas red. Nobody Perfect. loved Christmas. Like Vladimir Lenin. You had Lenin staring at Cruz. Excellent. Love it. All right. right. We'll see you after this. Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Since every minute counts when you're a new parent, who wants to waste time washing bottles? Transform this daily tour with the Baby Bretza Bottle Washer Pro the first machine that automatically washes, sterilizes, and dries bottles, pump parts, and sippy cups at the push of a button. Its 20 spray jets clean everything 100%. Plus, it sterilizes with steam, then dries with germ-free air. Don't waste time on tedious hand washing. Let the Baby Bretza Bottle Washer Pro do it for you. Shop now at babybrezza.com. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Well, we're joined now by Senator Ted Cruz of Texas, who's also the author of the new book. It's called Unwoke, How to Defeat Cultural Marxism in America. You can see it up on your screen right now. Senator Cruz, thank you so much for joining us here in CounterPoints. It's great to be with you. Thank you for having me. All right. So I want to start with a question that you've probably heard um, from critics. You were on Bill Maher recently on the left uh, over the course of uh, the last couple of months. The book is called Unwoke, again, as we just mentioned. And I'm curious, for example, when Elon Musk banned from the river to the sea on Twitter. Is that an example? Or what do you say to critics who would argue that's an example of conservative wokeness? Do you support banning that from Twitter? Look, I I don't support banning really anything. I I, I believe in free speech. And and, and I think that there's a real difference. It's one of the things I talk about in the book between the left and the right. The, The approach of the radical left, the approach of the cultural Marxists, is to use power and force and coercion to silence voices they disagree with. And by and large, conservatives, we're not looking to, to, to silence the left. I don't want to see Bernie, Bernie Sanders or AOC silence. Frankly, I want to hear, have people hear what they say more because it's so idiotic. Um, look, I, I agree with John Stuart Mill. The best cure for bad speech is more speech. Mm. And, and, and so, but at the same time, we need to understand the, the reason I wrote this book is what has happened in America, look, millions of Americans across this country are looking at the state of the nation going, 
what the heck happened to the country we love? And what has happened is every major institution in America has been captured by the radical left. Mm. And, and what this book does is, is it, it, it explains that. And, and each chapter in the book focuses on a different institution. So it starts off with universities. I call universities the Wuhan lab <laughs> of the woke virus. It's where it was created. It's where it mutated. It's where it spread. From universities, the book goes to K through 12 education, then to journalism, then to government, then to big business, then to big tech, then to entertainment, Hollywood, TV, movies, music, sports, then to science. And the last chapter in the book focuses on China. And I describe China as a central nexus that is intertwined with all of them. And what the book does is really two things. Number one, it explains how and why these major institutions in America got captured by the radical left, but then even more importantly, it lays out a positive, proactive battle plan for how we take these institutions back. Because I think if we don't take the institutions back, we're, we're gonna lose our country. The, the taking of these institutions back, though, sometimes seems to people like reverse cancel culture. Like my, my uh, former colleague, Glenn Greenwald, has been, a you know, kind of a, has become this kind of big supporter of the, the rights free speech kind of advocacy over the last several years. And I'm sure you've seen yeah, him recently. Yeah. He's been extremely disappointed with the way that the right has responded to the Israel-Palestine fine catastrophe. He, like he wrote, for instance, conservatives pushing this safety rhetoric, which isn't due to violence but words, should either apologize to the minority groups they mocked all these years or realize they're suddenly endorsing such flamboyant victim narratives because a group they like is claiming it. So why hasn't there been more kind of public support uh, for free speech in this the last six weeks? So, so look, I, I think free speech is, is the right approach, and I support free speech for everyone. I support it for radicals. I support it for leftists who hate me. I, I support free speech for Hamas. Now, I also support killing the terrorists so, so they can have free speech while they're in the grave. But, but if you engage in acts of terrorism, I, I emphatically support Israel's right to defend itself and its stated objective that they're going to eliminate Hamas. But when it comes to, to the U.S., actually what's happening uh, in universities in particular is a powerful illustration of what I explain in this book. It is cultural Marxism. And, and you know, I've had lots of conversations in the last two months actually with— um, with just uh, several weeks ago, I was talking with a very successful Silicon Valley entrepreneur uh, who's a man of the left. He's been a Democrat his whole life. And he was expressing complete bewilderment. Where is all of this vicious anti-Semitism on the left coming from? Whether it's in the squad in Congress or whether it's on college campuses. And I explained, I said, look, if you look at, and, and, and the book on Woke explains this, Marxist, it started out with Karl Marx writing the Communist Manifesto, and he had a worldview that the world is in constant conflict, and it's in constant conflict between oppressors and victims. And Marx viewed things in a socioeconomic lens, and so the oppressors for, for Marx were the owners of capital, and the victims were the proletariat, the working men and women. And the solution that Marx advocated for was the violent revolution of the proletariat of the victims to overthrow the oppressors and use government to forcibly redistribute the wealth. Now, what I describe in the book is how Marxists starting in the 1960s began infiltrating the universities 
and becoming tenured professors, becoming administrators. And, and from there, we saw Marxism begin to mutate. It started off just plain vanilla Marxist. Then it mutated on, on other axes. So you had, for example, the same frame of oppressor victim, but they shifted it to, to race. And that's where critical race theory came from. Same idea, constant battle, but based on races. They shifted it to gender and sexual orientation and gender identity. That's where things like queer theory came from. And, and what I explained to this fellow I was talking to is I said, look, what is happening is very simple. For the radical left, they have coded Jews as oppressors. And they have coded Palestinians as victims. And therefore, for a cultural Marxist, they support the violent revolution of the so-called victims against the so-called oppressors. It is part of what's been indoctrinated. And you look at universities, at these leftists who are radically protesting in support of terrorists who are committing atrocities that are unspeakable, that is a manifestation of the sickness that has taken over our institutions. Well, do you distinguish between opposition to Zionism and anti-Semitism, or do you believe that those are the, the I, same I, thing? I, I, I think anti-Zionism is anti-Semitism. What do you, so, I mean, what do you say to so many different Jewish groups who are, who are, who say that anti, they are anti-Zionist? So the, the ones that are, are radical leftist organizations that, that, that look, there are 50 some odd Muslim nations on the face of the planet. There's one Jewish nation, the state of Israel. The, the modern state of Israel was formed coming out of World War II, coming out of the wake of, of the Holocaust. And it was formed on the premise that never again means never again, that we would not allow six million Jews to be exterminated by genocidal racist maniacs. Um, I think the Jewish people deserve to have a homeland. The, 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 that is theirs. Israel was historically a Jewish nation going back thousands of years. I've walked in the city of David. I've walked on the streets where, where Jesus walked down the streets. And, and anti-Zionists, look, when you see leftists chanting from the river to the sea, that means from the Jordan River to the sea, it literally means obliterate the modern state of Israel because they hate Israel and they want to eliminate the only Jewish nation in the world that is racist and genocidal. Now, you asked earlier, would I ban that statement? No, I'd allow people to say it. You know, members of the squad have tweeted out from the river to the sea, but the answer, I'd allow them to say it, but I wouldn't sit there quietly. I'd point out yeah. that you are calling for, once again, the extermination of millions of right. Jews. As I'm sure you know, though, in Likud's platform, it says, you know, from the river to the sea, there will only be Israeli sovereignty. You know, are they suggesting genocide of all Palestinians? Of course not. Exactly. So if they're, if they're not, why is the other suggesting genocide? Be because that's what Hamas supports. You know, I, I started yesterday morning. But that's just restating it. Like, well, but, but, but hold on. Let me say, yesterday morning, I, I started the day by watching a 46-minute video of the actual atrocities mm -hmm. that Hamas committed. And, and about 50 senators watched it. I, you know, as you guys know, I do a podcast every week. It's called Verdict with Ted Cruz. I do it Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. Today's podcast is all about that video. Because yesterday morning, and right about this time, I, I sat in a room and I watched 137 people be murdered. And, and most of the footage 
was taken from body cams right. or cell phones that the Hamas terrorists were carrying. And they were gleefully murdering civilians. They were murdering women. They were murdering children. And, and look, Hamas, I, I got to say the most disconcerting thing, I, I've, I, I turned 53 in December. In 53 years of life on this planet, I've never had a day where I watched 137 people be murdered. That's, that's what I did yesterday. And when yeah. you watch people, the most disturbing thing was the joy, the glee from these terrorists. I'll tell you, there was a moment on the video where, where one of the Hamas terrorists called his parents and the Israelis intercepted right. the call. Mm -hmm. right. And we've heard of this one, yeah. And, and he calls his dad, first of all, and he says, Dad, I killed 10 of them with my bare hands. And he's like so proud and he's celebrating. 10, I killed 10. And he said, I want to talk to mom. Can I talk to mom? Yeah. And his mom gets on and he says, I killed 10 Jews. I murdered them with my bare hands. And she, she begins crying with joy. I, the, the twisted hate. Can you imagine calling your mother in celebration that you just murdered 10 people and you're yeah. proud of it and your mother is proud of you for doing it. And I know Emily wants to get a question, but I just, on, on this point real briefly, whenever we've had critics of Israel on, we've kind of insisted that they condemn that because while, while we, we disagree uh, with a lot on the show, we also try to find kind of moral common ground. And I, we, can, we can all agree that those types of atrocities need to be fully condemned. And with that in mind, I'm gonna read to you a couple of things that the, we've been hearing from the Israeli government. Uh, we've, we've had uh, Defense Minister uh, Gallant, we will eliminate everything, an IDF spokesperson. Our focus is on damage, not on precision. Uh, Agriculture Minister Avi Dichter, we are now rolling out the Gaza Nakba, Gaza Nakba 2023, that's how it'll end. Israeli Heritage Minister Amahai Elihu said a nuclear bomb is, quote, one of the possibilities. Uh, Finance Minister Bezal Smotrich, we need sterile zones in the West Bank. Uh, Israeli President Isaac Herzog, it's an entire nation out there that is responsible. This rhetoric about civilians not aware, not involved, it's absolutely not true. They could have risen up. They could have fought against that evil regime. Another former Knesset member, there is one and only solution, which is to completely destroy Gaza before invading it. I mean destruction like what happened in Dresden and Hiroshima without nuclear weapons. Would you join us in condemning that as well. So I, I condemn nothing that the Israeli government is doing. I, I stand with the people of Israel. And let me explain. There is a qualitative difference. The Israeli government does not target civilians. They target military targets. The Israeli government Why are they has so stated, bad at their targeting then if they're uh, killing so, 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 so many So they're civilians. actually not. They, they are, so then they are targeting. No, they're exceptionally good at. So, so for example, a couple of weeks ago, we had stories all over the world that Israel bombed a hospital in, in, in Gaza and killed 500 Palestinians. Now, it turns out that was a blatant lie. It was Hamas it's, propaganda. It's, and, and if you break down, literally every element of the story was a lie. So number one, Israel doesn't target hospitals. Israel why why used, have so many hospitals been targeted? Because they haven't. Because it's false. Hold on. Let, okay. let, let's actually look at the facts. So Israel uses precision-guided precision munitions. They don't target hospitals. What ended up, we discovered, was the case. It was the hospital. It was not an Israeli missile that took it out. It was a, a rocket from, it actually wasn't Hamas, it was Palestinian Islamic Jihad. And you got to understand, the terrorists in Gaza, 
They fire thousands of rockets. They have no guidance systems on them. So they literally put rockets. The rockets have some propulsion. They have an explosive. They have typically ball bearings or nails or something designed to kill as many people as possible. And they fire them in the general direction of Israel. But they can't steer them. Once they fire them, and about 20% of them end up hitting Gaza. So it's the terrorists that, that are actually bombing Gaza. So it was, it was a terrorist missile that hit, but number one, it wasn't from Israel. Number two, it didn't hit the hospital, it hit the parking lot. Number three, right. 500 p- people were not killed. All of that was a lie, and, that, and yet that, what happened, and I talk yeah. about this in the book, but that's journalism, that's, that's, but, but, but look, yeah. so, so I can tell you there is no military on the face of the planet, including the U.S. military, that goes to the lengths that the Israeli military does to avoid civilian casualties. So I'll but, give you- But the IDF said our focus is on damage, not on precision. Yes, we damage keep to Hamas, different... damage to Hamas, to terrorists. And, and I am no, all for- they, they have said that, the opposite. They keep saying that, that what that, they're doing is what they're hey, intending to do. The, and here the, in the that, United that States, is, we that, say that's that, not that, what that's they're doing. That's sim- simply not true. They are targeting the terrorists. No, my focus is on damage. Good, damage Hamas. I want to utterly eliminate Hamas. And I'll tell you something Israel does, for example. So why are there Palestinian civilian casualties? The reason is because Hamas uses human shields. Hamas wants Palestinians killed. Look, you look at the Hamas headquarters, it's in the basement of a hospital. They put it in the basement of a hospital, why? But they didn't find it there. They put it there because they want Palestinian mothers, children killed. They put missiles in kindergartens. And the reason is, it's part of on my podcast, I did an entire podcast that that, that was entitled, CNN is Hamas's Air Force. So is MSNBC, so is ABC. And I went through about a dozen stories where the, the corporate media just repeated Hamas propaganda. And look, Hamas is not strong enough to defeat Israel, but they're counting on the useful idiots in the media amplifying their messages. So I'll tell you something that, that, that the IDF does. So for example, if there's a building that they know they're Hamas terrorists in, they, they will drop initially what are called dud bombs. They'll drop a bomb on the top. They've done this it. in previous wars. That doesn't have an explosive and the, and the dud bomb will thud on the roof. Yeah. And they do it to tell the civilians, get out. They also, by the way, they have every cell phone in Gaza, so they will text civilians, leave. By the way, when Palestinian civilians try to leave, Hamas keeps them there. They want Palestinians to die because it is useful for propaganda. There's no military. By the way, the U.S. military, when we're attacking our enemies, we don't drop dud bombs telling people yeah. to evacuate. Well, it's only the IDF that does that. And so on that note, because we have to wrap, uh, hot conflict now in the Middle East again. Is it time to endorse Donald Trump, negotiator of the Abraham Accords? Look, I will say, President Trump, we had peace in the Middle East and, and Joe Biden inherited peace and prosperity. And he utterly screwed it up. We went from peace and prosperity. We now have two wars. We have the biggest war in Europe since World War II. We have the worst war in the Middle East in over 50 years. And it's because having a weak and ineffective commander in chief is a train wreck. It doesn't work. And and, and so, listen, we're wrapping up, but I I do want to encourage your viewers. um, The book is designed to... Number one, it's interesting and fun. It's filled with stories. It's not some abstract academic work. It's an interesting read. I want to encourage folks right now today, pull out your phone, go online, go to Amazon, go to Barnes & Noble, to go go to Books A Million, buy the book. And and, and I'll say this, look, Christmas time is coming. So so I'm going to encourage you to buy more than one. 
And, and, and in particular, it makes a great Christmas present. Buy one for Ryan. That's right. Yeah, look, look, look. I mean, literally, buy one for your mom, buy one for your best friend, buy one for your crazy left-wing neighbor. Cultural Marxism will triumph if we don't. That, that's exactly <laughs> right. And, and, and don't let, me, let Ryan win. And, yeah, and let, let me give you one, one more win. example, which is buy one for your kids or your grandkids, because they need to understand the poison that, that they're being indoctrinated for. And I wrote this book. I wrote this book for the same reason I do the podcast, that we've got to engage in the battle of ideas. We've got to engage in substance. And, and, and this book is designed to empower you to fight back, to take these institutions back. Senator Ted Cruz, Republican of Texas, thank you so yeah, much for joining us. we've been told you us. have to wrap. Uh, welcome to come back again. I, I look forward to it. Great. Thanks so much. All right, that was Senator Ted Cruz, and the book is The Squad, AOC and the Hope of a Political Revolution. You guys are actually, both. That's actually, that's actually my book, which is out next week. Yes. Consummate sales book. That's right. He's, he's on here to move those books. Uh, but if you buy mine instead, we can knock him off the bestseller list. <laughs> Wouldn't that say, be fun? That was one of the conversations that I have been waiting for. So we had this interview scheduled for a couple of weeks ago. We had to cancel his book tour. It, the book tours are crazy, which mm-hmm. you know, obviously you've done it before. But um, that was actually one of the best, I think, clashes of both sides that I have seen in public debate throughout this entire uh this entire conflict, and he was on a really tight schedule. So, you know, it was it was sort of, we were navigating that, yeah. this, this shortened timeline. But at the same time, Ryan, um, I was content, honestly. We had a lot of questions for him. I was actually content to listen to your back hmm. and forth. I thought that was actually very helpful. Yeah, I didn't, I didn't mean to Bigfoot it, no, uh, but no. he, he just throws out so much different stuff. And we were being told he had to run. Uh, if people are like, why don't you, you know, respond to every single thing he said, that's why. Because, you know. We could do an hour you know. with him easily. Yeah, and, and hopefully he'll come back for longer. Yeah, well, we appreciate yeah. him being here. We certainly appreciate What did you make of, uh, he said, there is absolutely nothing Israel could do that he would condemn. I think when you read, um, and the damage versus precision thing, again, yeah. that was a great question because that's not saying damage Hamas yeah, versus precision. Yeah. Because if, if you were saying precision, to, you would be saying precision in reference to Hamas. Yeah. So that doesn't make sense to me. I think those question, I think those points are extremely problematic. I do think it's unhelpful, as we talked about Thomas Massey, a Republican from Kentucky, saying earlier today to conflate, conflate anti-Zionism and anti-Semitism. Um, so yeah, I mean, I thought that was like a, a very useful. At the same time, I, I mean, I think condemning Hamas and, and demanding Hamas release the hostages unconditionally is entirely reasonable. Sure, do it. Yeah. yeah, release the hostages. Uh, by the way, we just appreciate everyone who subscribes. If you subscribe to uh, the premium version of Breaking Points, you get this whole show early. You get the video totally uncut, and you you know we we don't just get the clips. You get the whole yeah. full show. Uh, so outros, just like this one, but you also help make interviews like the one that we just did possible. Having some of the most powerful senators sit down for interviews with new media, uh, just a, a really important thing, and we appreciate all of your support so much. Yeah, and his book was called Unwoke, Something About Cultural Marxism. And you heard him, perfect holiday present, right? Perfect holiday present, but not as perfect as the squad out on December 5th. That's right. But you get it now. you do it so many times, I can do it. She she knows when it's coming out. We'll (laughs) see you guys soon. I actually will be out of studio because I'll be in Los Angeles next week. So I'll be remote for the show next week, but I will see you guys uh, from there. I'll I'll actually be out at Hassan Piker's for his stream. Oh my so gosh. be sure to tune in for that. I'm sure that's gonna be a, a lot of fun. Do you even know how to play video games? I, I mean, I did in the 90s. There you go, there all right. They <laughs> still play like Mario Kart? We'll find out. Okay. Tune in next week.
Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Need an easy button to feed your baby? Baby Bretz's Formula Pro Advanced makes a perfectly mixed warm formula bottle automatically at the push of a button. No air bubbles, no fuss. Literally, choose your temp, select your ounces, push start, and you're done. Works with virtually all formulas and bottles. Say goodbye to the 3 a.m. feeding chaos and hello to this revolutionary stress-free solution. Raising a baby is hard enough. Let Baby Bretza make feeding a breeze. Get your Formula Pro Advanced at babybrezza.com. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org.